tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction, television discussions, and interviews from shows that deserve your attention. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode four for April of 2016, and my name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about Winona Earp on Sci-Fi and Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC. This month's discussion topic will focus on advanced digital releases. And we are coming to you a week later than we expected. We had a little shuffling to do with the interview. Instead of The Magicians, which actually is wrapping up its season anyway, uh, as we record this, the season finale is this night, and another show is starting tonight as well, and that's Hunters, and we're going to be doing an interview that we'll share with you today from Brittany Oldford, who is one of the standout cast members on that show. So, Yeah, and you guys are really going to enjoy that. She was great. Yeah, she's definitely a good interview. But before we get too far into it, for those who need to avoid spoilers by skipping certain segments... Here are the time codes for today's topics. Why no Narp? 141. Agents of Shield. 2540. Interview segment. 4742. Advance release discussion. 6239. All right, so we're going to start off with first of all, is it Winona Erp or Winona Erp? <laughs> well, you know, the other characters seem to be saying Winona. Oh, okay. Because I've been saying Winona this whole time. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's that's their Western twang or whatever, but regardless, the show debuted Friday, April 1st, 2016 on Sci-Fi, as you mentioned. And what would you think, even before we get into it? I was pleasantly surprised because this is not my normal fare. And so I was watching it thinking, okay, this might be something fun to talk about because it's a little different twist. But I was pleasantly surprised. It was quite good. We are working on, what, two episodes as of this podcast? Yes. All right. So it'll be interesting to get a flavor of the show from that and see if some of our listeners might want to play catch up. Right. I mean, I, I know you love hard sci-fi, as, as I do, but I'm always surprised that you still haven't really seen The Librarians. <laughs> yeah, there is a glut of shows, really, and you can only make room for so much. But yeah, that definitely should be on my list. I'll tell you, though, what Winona Earp reminds me of that I did really like that's not necessarily in my wheelhouse, and that is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It definitely has that same flavor. You know, Buffy sending the vamps into dust with her stakes is very similar to the way Winona does it with her gun. So the campy humor is the same, and it's not too campy. That's that's key for me, not too campy. Right. Well, Emily Andrus, who is the show's creator and, and showrunner for this first season, when she was pitching the idea, she referred to it as Frozen meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So, you oh, know, there that, you go. That, yeah, that connection <laughs> is certainly on point. Before we get into it, the cast members playing the lead character, Winona Earp, Melanie Scrifano. Excellent, excellent actress. Yeah. Shamir Anderson as Agent Dolls and as Waverly Earp, Winona's younger sister, Dominique Provost Chalkley. And the chemistry right off the bat, I, I think, is really there for all three characters. And, and we do have a fourth character that we'll get to in a few minutes, but if that's an issue for you, you're you're going to really like this show. Yeah, and that's important. Chemistry between characters, likable characters, goes a long way, along with the writing, of course, the good writing. But 
definitely that is there, the personality plus. Right. So this certainly qualifies as supernatural, but we'd certainly be remiss if we didn't mention that the character's origins are in the comic field. Oh, correct. Winona Earp began as a comic and graphic novel by Bo Smith around 1994, and Andres was approached by IDW, which currently owns the rights. And after Lost Girl ended, you know, they wanted her to bring the story to the small screen, which of course she did. And it seems like it's in Emily Andres's wheelhouse, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. All right. So the premise, Winona is the great, great granddaughter of Wyatt Earp. And Mike, I was shocked how many young people have never heard of Wyatt Earp. But <laughs> yeah. that said, she returns to purgatory for her uncle's funeral. He died under mysterious circumstances and the same circumstances, apparently, that killed the girl on the bus that Winona's riding as she comes home for the funeral. Yeah, a great way to hook in the audience. What's going on here? What are these beasts? And what's the deal with being descended from Wyatt Earp? Why is that important? Right. And and certainly her recognition almost immediately on the bus that she's familiar with whatever is out there, again, grabs us and hooks us immediately, as you said. And I think it's interesting that this show starts off with the phenomenon having been dormant for a while, and she's coming back and finding that all the problems she experienced in her youth have come back, and she's going to have to get wrapped up in it again. Right. So we've got a dead girl, apparently with her head separated from her body. Yeah. And we find out at the funeral, although nobody really wants to admit it overtly, is that her uncle died with his head separated from his body. Right. And people seem to be looking the other way. I thought it was interesting in the premiere that it almost seemed like Winona was the only one that was willing to verbalize and admit what was really going on in Purgatory. And yet by the second episode, there are more people that are just saying, okay, this is what it is. Well, we do learn, though, that her willingness to admit reality, ironically, is what got her in trouble in the first place. She's, you know, We certainly know she's been in and out of juvenile facilities, whether or not she's been institutionalized because of her willingness to admit reality is still questioned. But that's perhaps a reason why nobody does want to admit the truth. And in fact, when we're introduced to U.S. Marshal Agent Dolls of the Black Badge Division, founded by Teddy Roosevelt, he's the first person that actually acknowledges it. In fact, he tells the sheriff, I don't care what you tell the townspeople, coyote, whatever, just don't tell them the truth. Right. And I find that very interesting because it doesn't seem to be something that's really denied all that much by the time you get to the second and third episode. So, oh, yes, I did take a little peek at the third episode, by the way. But um, it's interesting. I like the fact that Dolls is someone who's going to team up. You can clearly see they're going to be teaming up and she doesn't have to deal with the skepticism. You've got someone who already is on board. And in fact, the Black Badge Division deals with supernatural type stuff. And so now she has a vehicle to maybe do something about what she's been in denial about and what she's been running from, really. Right. And is he the Western version of Fox Mulder? <laughs> maybe a little bit. He's more Scully-ish, though, don't you think? I guess she's, he's not really a skeptic, but he's kind of a little bit more straight-laced. Well, he, yeah, he, he's very straight-laced. And, and 
right off the bat, he is an awesome character. He may be my favorite character in the really? show. Really? I'm yeah. surprised. <laughs> uh, I know. I really look. I like all four of the main characters. We haven't mentioned a, a fourth one yet. We'll get to him in a few minutes. But I really like them. And, and what I really like is that he wants to bring her onto his team and she does the little dance that, no, I don't work with anybody. I'm independent. And, and he basically then blackmails her with a list of all of her offenses. And that (laughs) if you join me, they go away. Right. And I think she finds very quickly that being part of the black badge division, giving herself some credibility really will help. Even if she has to do some, convincing of agent dolls to do things her way he wants to do it his way and there is a bit of a friendly tete-a-tete okay but you mike we're, we're dancing around the premise because we learn in flashbacks that revenants of the 77 people that Wyatt Earp killed have surfaced seeking revenge and the only thing that will kill them is Wyatt Earp's gun peacemaker yeah and these are undead the revenants are dead people that have come back to life in a demonic form. Right. And we slowly pick up pieces of information along the way. One is that when the Earp heir turns 27, that's when they surface. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, that that would explain the timing. I had forgotten about that because what I thought was strange is that Winona is not the original heir, right? She's the middle child. We assume Willa. The, the sister that died. Right. Willa is the oldest. She was being trained by her father to use the gun and, and become the heir, but she was nowhere near her 27th birthday. So it's interesting that I guess because they kind of died in the same event, the very traumatic event in Winona and Waverly's past, that they really didn't have a chance to train Willa up to use the gun because the father was still the heir at that point. But because both uh, the father and the older sister die, Winona becomes the heir. And I guess the revenants are just not able to come out until she turns 27. Is that how it works? Well, I guess, but even that, you know, I think we're making that assumption that Willa, since she was the older sister, was the heir. We don't necessarily know that for sure. True. I guess that story will come out as the uh, season progresses. Right. Maybe her father assumed she would be. Perhaps it was meant to be Winona all along. We don't know. And, and perhaps we'll find out. I haven't seen the third episode. Uh, I'm assuming we don't get, get that revealed then either. No, but I think the biggest reveal that comes out of these first couple of episodes about that is that as the revenants, and there are seven of them, seven very special revenants that attacked the homestead that killed the heir and Willa, thus making Winona the heir. And it's revealed that Winona, in trying to help using her father's gun, accidentally shoots her own father, who she was trying to save. That's got to be torturing her. Yeah, you know, a lot of times a show's pilot can get bogged down in exposition, and I think they did a really good job, especially using the flashbacks to provide us those details. A minute here a minute there. And as you said, it was really interesting because we we know she shot at the Revenant early on in one of the flashbacks, but we don't find out who shot her father until later on. Right. Because we're wondering, why is she running? Why is she tortured? This is why. This is why she was in denial all these years. Who knows where she's been this whole time, but now she's come back. She's here to end 
the Wyatt Earp curse. And we don't even know what, why does this curse even exist? Exactly. What did Wyatt Earp do to deserve having a curse placed on his family? Right. So now one thing that I really love is the contrast between the two sisters, because we see Winona and she appears as if she's going to be that prototypical, badass, sci-fi, supernatural, heroine, or perhaps even anti-hero dressed primarily in black. Don't dress her in pink. She hates pink. (laughs) Exactly. Set against her sister, who really has this clear personal style, loves fashion. we, We get to her apartment i guess if you want to call it that it looks like a big room (laughs) yeah and she's got clothes hanging all over the place but what we find out about her is that she's been obsessed with this erp family curse and and you know i refer to it as a murder board from my castle watching but she's got up on her wall every piece of information i I think in fact she says she's gone around to college libraries yeah and this sets her up as a sidekick of sorts She's the willow to Winona's Buffy. Oh, nice. <laughs> and she does become, although I'm not sure it's official yet, though, a black badge consultant. Right. <laughs> I, I think Agent Dolls is going to have to sign off on that. Yeah, so I, I think that was Winona's characterization. <laughs> exactly. So we've got that going on. Meanwhile, we get a look at the Revenants. And of course, that was a Revenant that attacked the girl on the bus ride home. but. What they want to do is get the gun and kill the air. Right. Well, some of them. This is what's so cool is that there's a division among the revenants. What should we do about our plight? We're trapped in the triangle, this area around purgatory where they can't wreak havoc across the entire world. And so some of the revenants want to develop a strategy to get the gun, kill the air. Some of them are trying to work on getting out of the triangle So there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of unity as to what to do about their undead status. Right. And we do find out that apparently there is something significant about the homestead, the Earp homestead, that has some sort of an effect on the Oh, right. You mean the the bedrock has some sort of special rock. Yeah. Now, what do you think about the name Purgatory? I I, I really like it. Yeah. It sounds kind of Old West. It's funny because it takes place in Canada, of all places. Even in the context of the show, they refer to the CSIS and they refer to other things that clearly place it. Of course, it's filmed in Canada, but even with this Old West feel, it actually takes place in Canada as well. Yeah. But look, I I love the fact that literally they're in purgatory, figuratively they're in purgatory, metaphorically (laughs) they're in purgatory. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I, I really do like it. Now, the other thing though you've got 77 revenants so if the show is going to be about the black badge division picking them off one by one i'm not sure how i'm going to feel about that yeah that's definitely a sticking point for me but i think people are starting to develop new ways to do the monster of the week in more developed ways and so far what i've seen from what i've seen they are keeping an ongoing storyline, even though obviously there has to be some sort of plot of the week. But you're right. If they have 77 Revenants, is it just going to be Revenant number one, Revenant number eight, Revenant number 27? You know, each time they knock another person off the list. Yeah. Now, 77 Revenants, 77 episodes of Lost Girl. I'm just saying. Coincidence? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. 
All right. Well, the other cool thing is she has the gun hidden. She gets it out. And we see that scene where she's basically got to try out the gun. And, and I think she's wondering, OK, I'm the heir. What does that mean I can do? What abilities do I have? Well, we find out accuracy with a handgun is not one of them. <laughs> yeah. She's not always dead on, is she? Right. But there's that group that's following her that wants the gun. And, and you know, so we've got all of these little plot twists, conflict twists going on, all within the context of the pilot, which, you know, they really did a masterful job of, of piecing this together, I think. Right. Because a show should not be judged on its pilot. But if it nails the pilot, that should be a point in its favor. Yeah. So... The other interesting thing is that the gun burns revenants who try to touch it, which obviously might be a problem for them if they're trying to get the gun. But the other cool thing is <laughs> that when they do get shot by her gun, Mike, how would you describe what happens to them? It's a really cool effect. Molten cracks appear in the ground and they basically get sucked back down into hell. So like I said, Buffy dusts her vamps. Winona just really has this cool opening up of the earth effect. And I love seeing it. Every time I've seen it, I've really enjoyed it. Combined with the red eyes that the revenants can pull out when they are showing their true nature, got some really cool revenant effects going on here. Yeah. Now, the other thing that crops up is that Agent Dolls is not convinced that it has to be Peacemaker to put them back in the earth. Yeah, strange. <laughs> You'd think that if he was part of a Black Badge division that's been around for a while, that he would have that little detail in his research that the agency has given him. But no. Right. Now, we also find out that these demons have cropped up elsewhere, or or not necessarily these demons, but similar demons. And we see what the government, and I assume it's CSIS. Uh, yeah has done to rectify that problem and it's essentially nuke the entire city into a crater right and so is this going to happen to purgatory and it brings out the protectiveness of winona as well so all of these are motivating factors for the protagonist yeah now it appears that winona's presence back in purgatory is not welcomed certainly by the revenants but clearly not by the townspeople not by her family in fact her aunt refers to her as being broken as they come you know somebody else asks her why she even came back in the first place haven't you hurt people you love enough so she's not getting much love other than from her sister right and you wonder if that refers to what she did to her father or other things that we are not yet privy to all right. Now, speaking of things we're not privy to, we got a few questions. Yeah. Yep. Some of the things that we're wondering about, and we've mentioned some of these along the way, but one of them is this fourth character you keep mentioning, who Winona seems to be a little sweet on, actually. <laughs> and that is the mysterious character that shows up that people think, oh, he's just in town, like some of the tourists, really into the cowboy thing and and even is talking like an old timer. Well, actually, it appears he might be an old timer. And as the show progresses, we start to get very significant hints that this guy is Doc Holliday himself from the Wyatt Earp era. Yet he's not a revenant. 
So is he immortal? What is the deal with this guy? Well, see, that's what I'm hoping. I mean, I think we do get that verified in the second episode, right? He sees the photograph. But I feel like he just returned on the 27th birthday the same way the Revenants did. Am I wrong about that? No, no. That's what I would think as well. So I think it's clear he is Doc Holliday and he stays at the edge of the Revenant camp. And as you mentioned, even though he's not one of them, because he says, I'm the only one of my kind. So what is he? Exactly. And what is he there for? There's certain amount of animosity, it seems like, towards the Earp heir. But for what, we're not sure. And especially since he was friends with Wyatt Earp, he was one of his best friends. So what is it that's motivating him? Or is he just expressing that animosity to please the Revenant hosts because he's got his trailer there on the edge of their park. Right. Now, is there significance of the air turning 27 or is that just some random age? Yeah. They had to pick an age that was close to their lead actress, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, obviously, they need to break the Earp curse, but how? Do they kill every single one of them and that's how it's done? Right. And then why doesn't Dahl seem to realize that conventional weapons won't work? You know, it seems as if he's got enough experience demon hunting that he would know. And what was he doing before? Yeah. What was he doing before the air cropped up? Maybe they had other supernatural things to deal with besides the Earp curse, which we will be finding out about along the way. Other supernatural creatures or something. All right. Well, there's a lot to like in this pilot. And you've mentioned Buffy several times. Right. This great lead character feels very much like uh, a chosen one of sorts. She's got the mentor, the sidekick, everything that this type of show needs. Great humor. Her sarcasm is well, well delivered without being campy. I love that. Yeah. Now, you mentioned already the demon effects are are pretty super cool from from the eyes, from the cracks. Uh, That that was a perfect way to describe it. It, It's almost as if the body becomes molten with those orange cracks and then uh, as it kind of melts into the ground and goes to hell. And I certainly hope that once they're sent down, they can't return. Right. Like they have to be able to go through this list of 77. <laughs> but that's the cool thing. There's a hierarchy. Here. Yeah. There are bosses. There are the seven, which are the, th- the ones that have three dead heirs under their belts. They've killed before. And these are the seven that Winona is prioritizing above all the other 70 that are out there. So I like Bobo, the boss <laughs> that shows up. And who knows how, uh, what other types of revenants they have. We've got the shadow assassin that's very different from the others. We've got the really speedy guy that's going to show up in episode three. So these revenants are not all the same. And I really like that. Right. Now, I'm not convinced that the Black Badge Division actually exists outside of Agent Dahl's mind. Really? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that he sets up shop at the local sheriff's office. He's not welcome there, but he just kind of strong arms his way in, takes over one of their conference rooms, and there's never any confirmation of anything that he's doing. In fact, I think the sheriff even wants confirmation. He says, no, this is need to know, and you're not need to know. So I wouldn't put it past dolls to have invented the whole thing. (laughs) Well, right. And then they don't ask him who he works for, because I'm sure his answer would be section six, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, look, there's a lot to like, it's not perfect, though, right? I mean, 
how the revenants work needs to be more clearly defined. And as you said, it's only a pilot episode, although we have been talking about some things that pop up in episode two as well. Are they from different time periods? We don't know. Yeah, it seems like they are. Some of them are from even Winona's time. She seems to recognize some of them as townies, uh, yet others refer to having done things in the early 1900s. So how old are these revenants? Are they all from Wyatt Earp's time is my question. But we said that this show might struggle with the revenant of the week syndrome. It may not. I think so far it has actually conquered that particular problem. So hopefully it will continue to do that. Okay. Now, I think we both like Waverly. How can you not like Waverly? Uh, (laughs) There's that interesting dynamic because she's not the total opposite of her sister, but but there's certainly enough difference to keep things interesting. But the thing with Officer Hot. Yeah, not so sure about that. (laughs) Yeah, seems a bit contrived. On the one hand, I kind of liked it. On the other hand, I'm just not sure. Because you almost feel like, you know, with Emily Anders being connected to Lost Girl and some of the plot lines that were similar to that that went on in that show, are they just going for a specific audience here? Because it seems a little bit too close to the premiere to be introducing this type of conflict. But you got to have relationships. And in fact, like I mentioned, it's not as though Winona hasn't shown some interest in Doc Holliday. So all kinds of shipping angles that can be started from the very start. Well, we're going to go ahead and move on to Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., our next show, which Dave and I actually podcast separately from Sci-Fi Fidelity about. So this is a show we certainly have been following. And hopefully if you've skipped over Winona Earp and are joining us now, you've watched all three seasons of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because we're going to be talking about all of them. I guess not in a super detailed spoilery way, but at the same time, hopefully you are familiar with this great, great show from Marvel. Yeah. All right. So season one aired September 24th, 2013 through May 13th, 2014. And each season has had 22 episodes. And, you know, it's certainly, I think, unusual for the genre show these days to do that many episodes. It's quite a challenge because you expect a certain number of filler episodes, but I don't think we've really gotten too many of those in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Well, what's interesting and probably will be a defining factor of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is the half season because Agent Carter was thrown in in seasons two and three. So that has become more of a thing than when that was absent in season one. Ah, the mid-season finale. Exactly. So you really can break it up into many seasons like some of the other genre shows would have. Right. And the other cool thing is that there's some bleed through with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Not a ton, but it is picking up as we get into season three. So back at season one, Phil Coulson's assembling his team of Melinda May, a.k.a. the Cavalry, Gemma Simmons, Leo Fitz, which comprised the science team, Grant Ward, the muscle and Sky, a lone wolf hacker with a mysterious background. And he's trying to put together what obviously we, we come to know as S.H.I.E.L.D., And this was an interesting season for a lot of folks who were disappointed from the very start that we're not dealing with people with powers. And there was a lack of buy-in. They wanted to see more Marvel Cinematic Universe tie-ins than what they were given. For the first half of that season, in fact, that was the case, and it lost a lot of viewers. But I think the people who stuck it out, they were very much rewarded in the second half of season one and definitely with seasons two and three. 
right? Because we got so much character development. I mean, we'll we'll talk about uh, the character of Sky played by Chloe Bennett, who now goes by Daisy Johnson, who is a powered individual. But to see how her character has developed over those three seasons is just remarkable. And as you said, patience is sometimes required. And unfortunately, we're in a society that that's not a big selling point to be patient. All right. So in season one, one of the primary storylines dealt with Project Centipede, which was a project designed to give individuals superpowers. And we're introduced to Mike Peterson, one of the program's reluctant test subjects. And this is more of a super soldier program, which certainly we've seen many times. Yes, indeed. And it eventually reveals itself to be the Deathlock program, which is straight from the comics. So I think people were pleased to see that particular element, but it was kind of on again, off again. And this centipede program was also somewhat separated from the rest of the plot lines. Now, eventually they got to the whole theme of season one, which was it's all connected, not just with the Marvel cinematic universe, but each episode, which seemed to be a separate plot line. It all tied into the big bad of the season. I hate to use that term, but there it is which was the clairvoyant who was steering all of it from behind the scenes. Right. And anytime you've got a character as mysterious as the clairvoyant, and then you learn that he's really anything but clairvoyant, he's just got good information. It kind of let a little bit of the air out of it for me. That's true. Now that you mention it, Uh, but it would have been more of a factor had it been not quite as cool as what John Garrett ended up being as a character was just wonderful because we all bought into him as a good guy until it was revealed that he had infiltrated shield. And uh, even though he was well known to all the folks, including Phil Coulson had been part of team Hydra the whole time. And that was the really big turning point for the show after captain America winter soldier came out and it was revealed that Hydra had been within shield since world war two. Right. But the, big reveal along with that is that grant ward is hydra as well so that first of all all the skyward shippers were were crushed i think at that point yeah and that's been tough to take for them uh ever since and ward has gone through a very vast amount of change throughout the seasons that he's been around really coming to his own in season three but this was a big turning point for him and it's planting the seeds again for season two with Project Tahiti, which was initially just an explanation for why Coulson, who died in the Avengers movie, <laughs> could possibly be back running S.H.I.E.L.D. without anyone even realizing that he was alive. Right. And we find out that Project Tahiti was designed to use an ancient alien corpse to make a drug so that they could bring back dead Avengers should they be killed. Right, which is brilliant. It didn't end up being used that way, uh, especially since there appears to have been some side effects of using the alien blood this way. And it was very exploitive using the alien this way, very torturous for them to be doing this. Right. And, you know, you use the word torturous. It it, it was certainly not a pleasant experience. And a a lot of season one revolves around Coulson really trying to come to terms with what has happened to him because he's had so many of his memories erased. Exactly. And that leads directly into season two, which for me had two different halves. 
it had, well, of course it literally did because of agent Carter really had two different storylines and season two began with a lot of this alien writing, mysterious etchings that Colson was experiencing because of the Tahiti project, because of the GH325 that he had been given. And what was it all about? What was it building towards? And then with the second half revealing what it was leading towards. Now, we're introduced to Bobby Morse, a.k.a. Mockingbird, and Lance Hunter, who've now joined the team. And I think most of us bought into the two of them right away. Oh, yeah. They were great additions to the team. Uh, there was some talk about the team experiencing a little bit of bloat. I didn't see that, personally. I thought it was just right, and they definitely added a lot of f- different flavor to the team. All right. Now, also in season two, Colson's named director of S.H.I.E.L.D., tasked with rebuilding the agency after the majority of the agents are either dead or working for Hydra. So he's got a very small core. Right. And a lot of the things that the second half dealt with started to lead the show towards people with powers, which was a very interesting thing, especially as all the announcements for the larger schedule for Marvel Cinematic Universe movies that were going to be doled out over the next few years. And one of them was the Inhumans. And so the speculation was running wild that the city was an inhuman city that Coulson's etchings of the map led them towards. And of course, that also led to them finding the secret sanctuary for inhumans known as afterlife. Right. Now, you mentioned the inhumans. We also learn about Terragenesis. And that's when we find out that Sky is, in fact, an inhuman. But we learn that these inhumans have this dormant inhuman gene which is alien yeah Cree, and it needs to be activated as it turns out with this fish oil yeah well it gets into the fish oil that was a really cool aspect of the i believe it was the season finale for season two when the obelisk is sent down to the ocean's floor as sky's mother is finally defeated and it gets into the ecology of the ocean and (laughs) is then able to spread to the general population to basically spread terogenesis worldwide. Right. And that just because you ingest this doesn't mean you're going to become inhuman. If you don't have the dormant gene, you just go on about your daily life. And that basically set up season three, really. Yeah. It's discovering who's got the powers and the cold war race to acquire them. Yes, absolutely. So we've got, Colson and S.H.I.E.L.D. on the one hand trying to bring in Inhumans as they turn up, I think more for their own safety as well as safety of the world as opposed to Gideon Malik, who's trying to assemble an army, nefarious army, and I might add, to take over the world. And to serve under one of the oldest Inhumans around which is trapped on this planet. Now, a lot of history is doled out in the beginning of season three. So this first inhuman that's been exiled to a completely different planet brought us some of the unique plot lines, most unique plot lines of the entire series. And the fact that they were able to integrate Ward into this storyline just at the time when he was becoming stale was just a brilliant move. Yes. And the transformation he's made the last couple of weeks continues that brilliance. Right. And it gave a lot of motivation to some people because, of course, at the end of season two, Bobby nearly died at the hands of Ward and Hunter was motivated 
by revenge at the beginning of season three. And that actually informed a lot of what they did. Bobby was injured at the beginning of season three because of that as well. So she was not in the field at first. So a lot of the character moments, and of course, we have to mention, because Bobby and Hunter are so recently departed from the show, <laughs> that these are two characters that are going to be sorely missed as they head to their own spinoff, Marvel's Most Wanted. Yeah, which brings up another point. We all knew they were leaving. Yeah. <laughs> which... I don't like spoilers. You know, it's look, I know it's 2016. That stuff's going to be out there. A lot of people really want to know that stuff. I would have much rather have been surprised. Right. It was something that had a lot of impact on its own, but would have had even more had we not known the spinoff was coming. Right. All right. Now we've mentioned Sky, who now that she's gone through Terra Genesis and has become inhuman, there's also a name change because she does meet her birth mother and her birth father and she now goes by daisy johnson which is also from the comics right because quake and the powers that she exhibits are very similar to quake in the comics even though they don't call her that in this show is associated with the identity of daisy johnson so daisy has really come the farthest of any character in the show she's been such a changed character to the point where now she really is just worried about defending the inhuman population and being almost their spokesperson for inhuman rights, as it were, and is almost as dedicated to that cause as she is the shield cause at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, there's so many layers to her. I mean, one of the first things we saw was you know, this fiercely independent young girl who'd been out on her own. I mean, she saw herself as an orphan, and, and we understand that. She hooks up with Coulson, who sees her as a daughter, she sees him as a father figure, and there really is this this really wonderful bond between the two of them. And then, of course, she becomes a member of S.H.I.E.L.D. She trains as, as a field agent. She certainly makes her mark there as well. And then we get to this point where Coulson's placed her in charge of putting together an inhuman team in their quest to keep a handle on this ever-growing inhuman population. But as you just alluded, now it becomes an issue of tactics and how far do we go to accomplish what it is we want to accomplish. And maybe now's a good time to bring up Mac, Alfonso Mac McKenzie, who has seemingly become the conscience of the group. And, and we saw that conflict uh, a couple weeks ago when she's trying to get information out of somebody and she's willing to go. I mean, if she had had the ability to waterboard the guy, I think she would have. <laughs> yeah. Daisy is really an advocate for powers, but also doesn't necessarily see the dangers of allowing people to ha that have powers to use them for whatever purpose they deem necessary to achieve an ends. It, it, exactly. And, you know, Mac even says, is this what we've become? Yeah. And, and he's really served that purpose, not just recently, but he has been that way because he was not a big fan of the idea of having people with powers in the second season when they were dealing with the other shield, the alternate shield. And he was not really enjoying the idea that people with powers were going to be part of shield. So he's gone through an evolution as well in that sense. Yeah. Now, Talking about Phil Coulson, I seem to say this in virtually every podcast I do, no matter what show, 
But to quote Oliver Queen in Arrow when he's talking to Barry Allen, guys like us, we don't get the girl. Right. <laughs> but Coulson did have that brief moment with Rosalind. Yeah. And he's had a couple of situations like this where uh, Rosalind's death had a huge impact on him. He's now also killed someone using his mechanical hand to finally get rid of Ward, supposedly. <laughs> and how much effect are those two things, Rosalind's death and him killing Ward? How is that going to impact his psychology? Because he already was such a damaged person with the GH325 treatment, and he just has to keep rolling with the punches. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the, her death scene was just heartbreaking because, again, we didn't know how far this relationship was going to go. But people in their positions, it's so fleeting. And then she takes that bullet to the forehead. And then we, we cut to the scene where we see Ward, gosh, what was he, a mile away in a sniper's yeah. nest? So yeah. the fact that he then kills Ward essentially with his bare hands, you know, you'd think on the one hand, the revenge would be sweet, but again, it seems to have damaged him even further. And someone who should be able to give him advice on that score is someone else who's been damaged all the way back to her earning the nickname of the cavalry. And that's Melinda May. And as if that weren't enough, she's already dealing here in season three with her ex-husband who she has finally reconciled with only to find out that he is inhuman as well and has become this monster lash that kills inhumans fairly indiscriminately. And they just can't abide that. And unfortunately, Andrew is caught up in that. Right. And she gets caught up, I think, in her emotional side, because we don't really ever see a soft side to Melinda May. And we understand that because of her role on the team. But you can see she's clearly conflicted about what to do about her ex-husband, Andrew. And as it seems in season three at this point, she thinks he needs to be put down. Exactly. And I can't wait to see how that develops because all these characters seem to have something like that that they are having to deal with. And I think that's a testament to balancing the show out a little bit for each character to have something different that not only builds on what seasons one and two gave to their characters, but where they're headed in season three. And in fact, I think the one exception to that, or two exceptions, I should say, are Fitzsimmons, who I think have received a little bit short shrift this season. Yeah. And obviously the two are inextricably linked. Yeah. But as you said, it's a shame. I mean, we do see them each week, but just little snippets. But I think the thing that that's fascinating for me is because of her time on Mavith, she's been changed significantly. And last week we find out that she's had it up to here with people putting their lives on the line for her and in some cases dying for her because she couldn't defend herself. As she even says, I'm the only girl on the team that can't kill somebody with their bare hands. Right. And I hope this is a sign of big things to come for her character because she has been somewhat defined this season by her relationship with Will, who she met on Mavith and spent many months with, and her relationship with Fitz, which just got going at the end of season two. And she really hasn't had much else to do besides that. There you said it. Their relationship. Yes. <laughs> and it's really, again, so interesting to see because look, these two, 
I don't know if we want to say they've been in love with each other since the beginning. Leo has, I think. (laughs) The two of them have just agreed to kind of take a few steps back and let's just see what happens. No pressure. We're friends. We'll, We'll go from there. Well, on that score, I really do need to see more for them now, now that they've made that decision. Because Fitz was very interesting, not only in season two as he was recovering from being on the bottom of the ocean in season one, Season two was all about his recovery. And season three started out as his rescue of Simmons, which no one believed could be done. And then once that happened, it just backed off, you know? And so there wasn't much for him to do either. So I'm hoping that that's just temporary and that Fitz and Simmons are about to embark on some character moments of their own. Right, because he's essentially saved her life twice. Right. Right. Once when they were thrown (laughs) to the bottom of the ocean by ward now the last member of the team that i think we need to address is lincoln campbell who is also inhuman and we first meet him when we're at afterlife and the interesting thing here is that he just doesn't really seem to be suited for field work and maybe that's because of the way he was raised at afterlife but even colson knows and confronts him with the fact that the only reason he's here is because of his affection for daisy And that's not the right reason to be in this line of work. Exactly. And perhaps that's been my problem with the character is the same reason why Coulson has a problem with him. Not so much that he's all over the place because he is, but that's just because he hasn't really made his decision yet. He's still defined by his many years as being part of afterlife. And he kind of had a hard time adjusting to shield since he pursued a medical career. So He hasn't quite settled in, both in the story and for me as a character. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about the two big bads real quickly. Grant Ward, obviously, started out the season rebuilding Hydra, hooked up with Gideon Malik, who seemed to be another mentor to him in in the way that John Garrett had been. But now the tables have turned. And look, we were calling Ward Hive because that's the connection in the comics. Right. But there really hasn't been anyone calling him that. And the powers seem to to fit the description of the comics character. But he seems to be his own thing, as often happens with comic tie-ins to television. Right. So I think you and I agree that we're going to refer to him as Ward until somebody on the show refers to him as Hive. Exactly. But you mentioned the most important thing, which is that Malik was a mentor to Ward at the beginning of season three. And now Ward seems to have taken the upper hand in his new personality, whether it's Hive or whatever. So Malik has then become an interesting character as well from being very much in control to perhaps not being so much in control once his lifelong, well, years long, centuries long mission, you know, his ancestors were working on this goal. And now that he's done it, I think it really would be something where he wouldn't know what to do with his life after accomplishing that. So I think he's going to take some cues from whatever is inside Ward. (laughs) So that basically is leading into the second half of season three of shield. And we're going to keep talking about it over at the sandboxpodcast.com If you're interested in following our podcast over on golden spiral media, but we're going to go ahead and move on now. So if you've skipped to this time code, you're, 
here to listen to our interview with Brittany Oldford, who is one of the standout cast members on Sci-Fi's Hunters, which just began on April 11th as we're recording this. And just general impressions of this show, it was a little bit slow to start in the pilot, but I'll tell you, it starts to get intriguing about halfway through episode two. So if you can stick it out through next week and check out episode two, you'll start to see where the deeper mysteries start to unfold. And even if you don't necessarily buy into it, because it's not the strong pilot that Winona Earp had, let's put it that way. But it's got some really interesting turns for the villains and Brittany Oldford's character, Alison Regan, really has an interesting twist. And I'll let that be revealed during the interview. So let me go ahead and introduce uh, Brittany Oldford here. She's no stranger to television, having played defining recurring roles on MTV's American reboot of the popular British sexual awakening series Skins, as well as on American Horror Story's excellent second season Asylum. And fans of CW's The Flash may know her as the metahuman short-range teleporter Peekaboo, and now she stars as Agent Allison Regan. So let's take a listen to the interview that we had with her last week. Thank you very much for joining us today. We are very happy to be talking about a show for the first time that hasn't come out yet. So you're going to give us a nice <laughs> yeah, teaser. Definitely. <laughs> uh, well, let me get right into it here. Uh, I think it's interesting that this show is being uh, dubbed as from the people who brought you 12 monkeys and the walking dead. <laughs> But but actually, Natalie Chaidez and Gail Ann Hurd also have a connection with the Terminator movies and TV show. Yeah. So uh, what what do you think these two ladies bring to the show that you can see evidence of as an actor on the set? I mean, I think, uh, first off, working with Gail Ann Hurd has been a dream of mine. I mean, I grew up watching Terminator and, and Aliens and watching Sigourney Weaver just play. So... It was amazing working with two very strong women who are so integral to the female voice in the supernatural genre, which is something that I, I grew up on and loved. I mean, the first live-action film I remember watching was Star Wars as a kid. Thank you, Mom. Uh, <laughs> so working with them, I mean, what they bring is they bring years of experience and knowledge Again, in, in this genre, so the umbrella of supernatural, which is sci-fi, which is fantasy, which is, you know, uh, superheroes, so on and so forth. And with that came a lot of trust from us actors going into, you know, a new show can be tricky. It's the first season, especially because you're really sort of feeling it out at first and seeing what works. And, and being out in Australia was amazing, but definitely very daunting being away from home. So they brought a full circle experience to the project, which I think we all definitely benefited from, and and it shows. The world is expansive, and it is very specifically geared towards an audience, and um, you know, just specifically the beautifully nerdy, amazing audience that uh, we know and love. But also, it's accessible to everyone, and and I think that holds true with The Walking Dead. It holds true with all of these stories because they're really allegories for human experience. Okay. Well, you play Allison Regan, who's both an agent with the ETU and a hunter. And although Flynn Carroll could be considered the main character, 
Regan is definitely a central character as well because of her unique perspective. And when we meet her in the show, how much does she know about her origins, both as a human and as a hunter? And are you able to tell us what some of the alien abilities we might see from Regan? Yeah, I mean, I think that the story definitely starts with Flynn Carroll, and because this is based on the book Alien Hunters by Lee Strieber. So you start along with Flynn's story, with Nathan Phillips' story, uh, trying to find his wife, and he stumbles upon this underground government organization, and you find my character, Alison Regan, and yes, she is a hunter, which was amazing to play. Um, and some of her abilities are for hunters. Um, we have incredible hearing because we're actually we're, uh, auditory creatures, and we are faster than humans. We can be stronger than humans. We're not necessarily physically afflicted by similar things as humans are. And yeah, it's it's very much the show, which I love, a collaboration. It's, it's just this whole team trying to figure out what to do, how to do it. Are the aliens bad? Are they good? What lengths can humans go and be able to sleep at night to sort of figure out why they're here, what's going on, what is their purpose? Are they going to leave? So on and so forth. And who the hunters are, because they look like us, they look like humans. It's very tricky. They are sort of the threat among us. Which, um, which is terrifying. And uh, one of the other central themes, it seems, of this show is actually trust. And given the unknown factors that surround Regan's biology, it makes sense that Flynn doesn't trust her at first. And even Briggs, who has worked with her longer, doesn't really seem to be fully on board. But, <laughs> but what's weird is that your boss, Trust Jackson, seems completely confident in Regan's loyalty. Is there a reason for that that's going to become known? I think the reason why Trust Jackson, uh, who is played by Louis Fitzgerald, his character trusts my character because he knows that Regan ultimately wants nothing more than just to be human. Uh, she's incredibly conflicted with her hunterness and her abilities and the urges that come with it, be it very primal, whether it be aggression or otherwise. And she's tormented by it constantly. Uh, and she just wants nothing more than to be good and to fight for what she believes is right. And he, being of a Mormon faith and also, you know, being in the military for such a long time, he feels the same way. And, and those values and that strong conviction is what really brings them together and why he time and time again will go to bat for her. Okay. Now, are Regan's sexual appetites seen in the series premiere part of her, her humanity and emotional feelings about the death of her close colleague, or, or is it maybe some animalistic aspect of her hunterness? Right. Um, that's a great question. There, it's definitely a part of her hunterness. It's a part of the desire and the need to relinquish the, the feelings that these hunters have and, and being in these human forms. Um, it can be very difficult. And so... It's a part of the hunterness, but at the same time, it is very human. It is very primal and animalistic, and I think that, depending on what you believe in as, as humans, there are certain things as an actor that it was so amazing to be able to really dive into the anger and rage and aggression and, and our own primal natures, which I think in everyday society, it's, especially as a woman, I think it's, it's sort of unacceptable to to release certain things and to talk about certain things and to acknowledge certain feelings, emotions, passions, etc. So it's 
I guess it's it's a bit of both, really. Uh, it depends on what angle you choose to to view it at. Well, what's interesting to me, and you're obviously going to be one of the strong female characters on this show, but before I ask my next question, I have to say that another strong character that I really liked in the first couple episodes is Sarah Pierce as the boss's boss. Oh, yes. <laughs> Finnerman. Yeah, Finnerman. <laughs> Pretty tough, too. <laughs> She's a force to be reckoned with. Working with that woman was an incredible experience. But this show is actually produced by women, written by women. All the directors of photography are women. And yet most of the people on the ETU are men. So does all the behind-the-scenes mm-hmm. support from women in leadership make it easier to play this complex female role? Uh, I think I've had very good fortune in the, in the sense that I've been able to play a string of very strong women. Again, ironically, uh, the show itself is definitely, at first glance, a boys' club. And I knew that going in. I knew I was going to be working with a lot of brooding, strong men uh, uh, during the five months we were out in Australia, which I loved because I'm very much a guy's girl. I grew up playing video games, grew up with my older brother and, and hanging around his friends all the time. But really, it, it's right. You know, the, the spine of this show is strong women. And I think it lends a, a vulnerability and a sensitivity and sort of a different vision to this very male-centric world that the story of the ETU, you know, the story of hunters. Um, it's very military. It's very, it's, it's very much a crime drama as well as this sort of horror science fiction thriller, which is great because I think, I believe, hopefully, um, it'll allow other chicks to to get down with that sort of thing and be like, heck yeah, it's totally cool to be a nerd. It's totally cool to be badass and into all of these things. Uh, you know, why not? Well, speaking of strong women, apparently you had to go to hunter boot camp to learn to move like a hunter. What what did the training entail? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I tried as much as possible. I'm usually uh, skinny broad. Um, and I tried as much as possible to, to work out and to put on a bit of muscle before the show. And then for the hunter side of things, you know, we were given a Bible that had the terminology for certain aspects of the hunters. It had really the whole world written out for us, which is amazing. And also having this, all 13 episodes, although we didn't read them all at once, having those already written in TV, especially, is just such a blessing because that rarely happens. So we really, uh, Julian McNan, who plays Lionel McCarthy and I, we had some training to kind of learn and figure out the physicality of hunters when we are more primal, uh, which was amazing. And, and really just figuring that out and making sure that that was in our minds as we were playing the characters every day on set. Uh, so it was very intense. It was, it was pretty grueling at times, but with how fast-paced the schedule was, um, it, we were really just trying to keep up, which was very exciting. All right, well, one final question here. You're on record as being a fan of the Sci-Fi Channel, which Hunters appears on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm just curious, what shows have you really enjoyed on this network, and and what do you think Hunters brings that's unique to the programming lineup? Yeah, I I mean, I have such a sweet spot for Face Off. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's like the best show ever. And last night, I watched, you know, it was the first part of the season finale, and it just drives me crazy. It's so good. It's so good, because we had an amazing prosthetic supervisor, Justin Dix, and I've always been a fan of makeups. You know, the first time that I really experienced 
any prosthetics was when I filmed American Horror Story, uh, the second season, and I just fell in love. It's like you, it's the secret world that people have never really had too much of an opportunity to take a glance at unless you're watching behind the scenes or, or special features on DVDs, really. And so Face Off, when I discovered that show, oh, <laughs> it just fills me with something very special. And I love it, and I hope it goes on forever. Um, another show that I've been pretty obsessed with is Magicians. Oh, yeah. Because um, <laughs> I'm very, as much as I love, love, love science fiction, fantasy is really made bread and butter, and magic is, magic is real. Magic is everywhere. And, <laughs> and that show, it's, my goodness, it is so dark, and it is so gritty, and it is so real. Um, You're preaching to the choir. And I think that's... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, my. Anyway, anyway. And I've met the cast, and they're all incredibly lovely. But I think that I can kind of equate those similar feelings to Hunters in the sense that it's really taking this very accessible platform to talk about real issues, to talk about what's going on today, to talk about fear, to talk about power, to talk about what really is good, what really is bad, like what does that mean to you? It's very subjective. And really talk about the humanity of any different type of person. Um, and I think that Hunters is, is going to make aliens scary again. It's going to bring back that fear and, and uh, hopefully people watch it and become introspective and, and ask questions. I think that's the most important thing that you can do in life is constantly question yourself uh, to see if, if you really are being the best that you can be. Cause right now it's a scary time and, Fortunately, there are a lot of issues in the world that are now coming up to the forefront, one of which that's very important to me is that of fear of the difference, fear of the unknown, the other, um, whether that be a different race or a different religion or so on and so forth. And I think ultimately all of these shows and these, this umbrella, you know, supernatural genre, uh, for me at least, it really helps me sleep at night because I, I realize. You know, we're all human. We're all a part of this world. And hopefully we learn to accept and love a little bit more, a little bit better, because that's really the whole point. <laughs> that's right. Of life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, life. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to the premiere on April 11th. And can't wait to see more of Allison Regan. Yeah, thank you so much. This is awesome. Take care. All right. Well, she was a lot of fun, and I wish her the best in this show. And we'll see where this Hunters show goes, because it's an interesting premise, and it's certainly unique to other alien shows out there. All right. Well, finally, we want to get into our discussion topic for this month's podcast, and that has to do with advanced digital release premieres being floated out there by the networks. And, you know, Mike, I, I was wondering whether or not they're taking a page out of Fox's book. Now, I'm not sure Fox Network would admit to this, but I think it's popularly believed that in the summer of 2008, they leaked the pilot for Fringe on the Internet. Oh, right. <laughs> I remember that. And we were all wondering, was it really leaked or did they leak it? as a strategy. Yeah, that I think could be the first instance in my memory of an advanced release, but it was uh, 
perhaps a little bit more underhanded. But it should be mentioned that this discussion topic did come to us through our Gmail account at scififidelity at gmail.com, which is where you can send suggestions for our discussion topic. And Taltos did exactly that. She wrote into us and said, it seems like it's becoming more common for networks to give a sneak peek of a show by pre-leasing the pilot or a few episodes after the pilot has aired. I am referring only to officially released episodes and not leaked screeners, etc., which might be the case for Fringe. Based on personal experience or what you've seen mentioned in social media, do you think these sneak peeks or pre-leasing of episodes actually help the shows gain an audience? Is there a limit to how far in advance a show should be previewed? I.e., is there a point at which any momentum the show might have gained from its preview will wear off if the gap between new episodes is too long? Can sneak peeks actually hurt a show because people will forget to catch the next episode when it finally airs? Or could it be confusing for a viewer when they expect a new episode to air the following week and there is none? And this has happened as recently as, gosh, it was last week when season two of 12 Monkeys pre-released its premiere and then people were complaining, oh, I have to wait two more weeks for the second episode now. And so some people chose not to tune in specifically because of that. Well, I mean, she brings up a lot of excellent questions and I would just touch base with fringe again. Did it hurt fringe? I would say, no, I would think if nothing else, it drummed up interest. I know I was certainly ecstatic with what I saw and couldn't wait. And and of course, watch the pilot again. And they had made some tweaks between whatever it was that was leaked in the summer and what aired in September, but still, but that uh, was eight years ago. I know that that's a different time, different era right now, man in the high castle. Yeah. That pilot was available. Gosh, probably close to a year before the show was finally released. Okay. But that's, Amazon. Now, you mentioned Fringe, which came out long before any of these streaming services were doing what they're doing now, Netflix included. And Man in the High Castle was one of Amazon's pilots, which were specifically previewed so that people could vote on them. So I think that's a very unique situation that Amazon has done where they do a series order for any pilots that are popular enough on their streaming service which I think it is a good measure, especially compared to the rating system we have these days. Okay, so who out there has pre-leased things? Well, there's a lot of ones that came out in the past year, and I think that's why Taltos brings it up. Continuum did it for season four. The Magicians and The Expanse released their series premieres almost a month ahead of time, and those are both new shows in 2016 and 2015. So... A month ahead? Don't you think that might be overdoing it a bit? I think it did. Well, I would think their reasoning might be that, let's say somebody like you sees that pre-lease and it's like, oh, this show is awesome. Dave, did you did you hear about the expanse? Wayne, did you hear about the expanse? And then and, you know, it's like one person tells two people. That person, and just spreading it word of mouth. I, I don't know. And then, of course, with social media. I don't know. I, I, I think that's a, a smart way to do it. I think maybe my threshold would be two weeks. So you're right. There is an advantage to it because you get word of mouth going before episode two airs. And therefore, people don't feel like they missed out and are now too far behind to catch up because only one episode has aired. Someone told me about it and it's still 
just the one episode. So I have time to jump on the train. Right. Exactly. So, but I still, I think two weeks would be my threshold. I'm picking that fairly arbitrarily, <laughs> but yeah, sci-fi network in particular is doing it. Uh, I know that other people have certainly done that as well, but that's definitely something that we're going to have to keep an eye on because it's such a new phenomenon. I don't think we can definitively answer all of Taltos's questions, but it is a new phenomenon that should definitely be watched to see what the impact of it will be long-term. Well, some great discussion topics, not only for the shows and the interview, but also there at the end. I hope other people take Taltos's cue and email us at sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com to give us some suggestions. We certainly would love that. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and you can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in May, we're going to be discussing two of our most anticipated shows of the season, 12 Monkeys on Sci-Fi and Orphan Black on BBC America. In the meantime, though, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Plus, as I mentioned, we do take suggestions for future topics. The email again is scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.